Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Nathan Welcome Hobson, to the New Books Network. For the new Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Kate Sylvester about her book, Women and Martial Art in Japan, which is out from Rutledge in 2023. Sylvester's book examines sport, gender, and society in Japan through the author's extensive experience and ethnographic research as, on the one hand, a kendo practitioner at elite international levels, and on the other, a practitioner in Japan. Sylvester focuses on kendo as a university sport, placing her own experiences as a veteran foreign competitor, uh, working within the hierarchies of that system within the context of the ideologies and lived realities of gender in contemporary Japan. In doing so, Women in Martial Art in Japan unpacks the sporting masculinity that permeates women's experiences of sport within a masculinist culture and places the practice of sport within the idealized and actual life course of Japanese women. Okay, Dr. Sylvester, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. So we're going to be talking about uh, your book, Women and Martial Art in Japan, uh, which centers on the culture of university kendo clubs uh, in Japan and what they say about sport, gender, and society uh, in Japan now. And so we're going to get to all of these aspects of the book, obviously, but I, you know, we, we generally ask people sort of how you got to this project. Um, in your case, this is a, a quite a fascinating personal story, which is very relevant. Um, and because you're using the methodology of uh, embodied ethnographic, uh, the embodied ethnographic method uh, for your research. Um, and this is one of your sort of big interventions, I guess, for the book in thinking about how to examine sport, gender, and society. So can you tell us about the the genesis, the, the methodology of the book, um, and how it fits into your life and your personal journey uh, as an athlete, as a coach, and as an academic? Oh, thank you, Nathan, and uh, thank you for having me on your podcast today. Uh, please refer to me as Kate. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I guess my first experience of kendo started when I was uh, 16 as a high school exchange student in Japan. And in a sense, for the past 30 years, my experience of kendo has been an autoethnography. Uh, but my formal research did not start until I was an undergraduate student, uh, a physical education degree majoring in physical education and uh, Japanese language. So my plan was to be a physical education teacher and a Japanese teacher. Uh, but one at one uh, lecture at my university during my undergraduate course, I was listening to a lecture by assistant professor uh, Brent McDonald, and he was discussing baseball and sumo. And I was quite drawn to this conversation. I approached him after the lecture. We started to talk about Japanese sport culture and he invited me to his office to continue talking about it. And from there, I told him about my kendo experiences. And uh, there's a bit of a pause. And then I went, to, uh, I was competing for Australia at the time. Uh, and I was on the national team. Uh, and there was a competition in Brazil at the World Kendo Championships. And during that competition, I had a really incredible experience competing against a Japanese team member. And during that time, I experienced uh, Aiki, or connection, and a feeling of uh, mushin, which is a no mind in a Kendo context. And I think from that experience, I really wanted to understand why I enjoyed the experience so much training with this elite level Japanese national team representative who was a captain and who had previously won the All Japan Kendo Championship. So she was basically the best kendo practitioner, elite competitor at that time. Uh, but during the match, I speaking about this Aiki or flow experience, uh, I 
reveled in that moment so much. I enjoyed the fight so much that I didn't feel this desire to win, although we had scored one point each and it was equal. Uh, but I just wanted the connection to continue. And so after the competition had finished, the match it ended obviously it ended in a draw. I received a Fighting Spirit Award, and I went back to Australia and I spoke to Brent again about my experience, and he encouraged me to explore that experience that I'd had and suggested that I go to Japan and conduct a field research, uh, researching women's kendo. So he uh, basically provided an opportunity or suggested the opportunity to rather than continue on my physical education degree course, that perhaps I undertake postgraduate studies. So then I went to Japan and I uh, researched women's kendo uh, for an honours course for a one-year period. And uh, the research is quite successful. And uh, so the fieldwork basically was a pilot study for my PhD uh, research that conducted an 18-month ethnographic, so participant uh, observer research project uh, at one Japanese university. Uh, Yes. So basically that was what led me to my formal research uh, journey. Uh, But I was quite thankful to, well, to Brent McDonald at the time because he was uh, basically a, a mentor who uh, obviously from an academic perspective, he saw great interest in the research, but also from a personal perspective, he really encouraged me to undertake a, a personal discovery of a personal journey of discovery. So understanding what was actually happening during that match and trying to understand my connection or relationship that I felt with uh, Japanese women's kendo in particular. And of course, the PhD research really helped with that. I not only researched women's kendo, women's sport in Japan, uh, but also I came to understand why it was so personally significant for me to uh, train with women, especially uh, elite Japanese women. And that, of course, but that happened at the end of my research project that I realized why it was so significant. Uh, to me yes yeah thank you for uh, laying that all out and that's a big part of what uh, chapter one of the book is is sort of describing that personal journey that led you to the writing of the book Um, and I I guess I can't be the first person to say that uh, it's an unusual path from a flow state in the uh, uh, kendo world championships to an academic book Um, but uh, yeah it it does make a lot of sense when you put it out that way Um, and this is a like I said it's a big part of the sort of beginning of the book, uh, chapter one, examining culture through the body. And that kind of pairs uh, as a unit with your chapter two, which is shared humanity and embodied ethnography. Um, And there you talk about some of the difficulties that you encounter actually when you're doing this ethnographic field work, specifically with uh, deconstructing the power imbalance of the University Kendo Club, where you did that field work, um, and looking at the hierarchical relationships, which, uh, as you say, tend to form the basis of Kendo Club organizational structures. So can you tell us about how you identified and managed these challenges as a participant observer? Um, and specifically in, in the book, you focus on uh, reciprocity and sort of various forms of reciprocity and how that's constructed within these relationships and how the, the relationship that has with maintaining a kind of order um, and also helping people to grow. Uh, you also talk about drinking and other things too, but uh, you know, if you could sort of explain how those relationships and the challenges of them uh, you know, informed your fieldwork and how your fieldwork informs your perspective on them? Mm. That's a very good question. Thank you. Uh, so in terms of re- identifying the hierarchical relationships, I think that's quite easy in sport environments because there's a, a group of bodies that need to be organised. So basically, and it was replicated across all kendo spaces, the same organisation of bodies. So basically it was div- uh, divided by gender first. And then by, uh, so you'd have 
a male club on one side of the dojo and female club on the other side of the dojo. And then they'll be lined up in uh, by year level. And then the teachers and instructors and people like myself at the time, who was a guest initially, uh, we are positioned out the front. So it's, and those, that organisation was replicated uh, in uh, drinking parties, at competitions, across everything. So it became quite easy uh, within a few months to recognise how hierarchies were organised at a symbolic level, I guess. But, of course, beneath what's happening within those relationships is much more complex. And I think... This is one of the issues with some research that has examined sport practices that are focused on male participation and they have discussed uh, female participation, but in a way oversimplified it. So basically they've seen first the gender segregation uh, and then obviously men's sport is generally prioritised as higher status associated with it. So, and also women tend to do menial tasks within the club when the club is working together as a unified club. But I think those are all very uh, surface level practices and when the clubs are separated, how the clubs operate within their same sex hierarchies is uh, it's quite different for males uh, and females, and I spent most of my time with just the female club. And I think once I recognised the pattern of how bodies and practices were organised to fit within the hierarchical mould, I really needed to understand what was happening within the women's club and beneath the surface. Uh, And it was quite complex and I was actually very much an outsider for quite a long period so I needed to find a way to develop a rapport with the members uh, and try to deconstruct the imbalance of power that was there because I was positioned as a guest. Uh, I was much older than the students at the time. I was 36. Uh, They were aged between 18 and 21. I had a higher rank, so at the time I was fifth done in Kendo. I was also a national team member. I was also a friend. Uh, well, I wouldn't say a friend. <laughs> I had a very good relationship with uh, the wife of one of the main sensei. So I was actually in a position of higher status. So that was, and that caused uh, a distance with the members. And I guess they felt they needed to treat me as a guest, uh, but that also meant that I wasn't able to uh, just freely talk to them, especially within the dojo. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I needed to find a way to, uh, un, I guess, unpack the status that had been built for me uh, and try to un- deconstruct that so I would be able to also ethically uh deconstruct the power imbalance but also be able to develop a rapport with the members and also answer the personal questions I had around why was it so special for me to train with uh, female kendo practitioners particularly elite so that was quite a big part of the questions I had uh, yeah, so there were quite a few different things I had to do in terms of uh, initially was working out how I could contribute to the club. Yeah, one of the things that I um, picked up and enjoyed from these early chapters was this sense that um, you know going in as an outsider whose status was not only sort of difficult for yourself to sort of understand where you fit in, but it was equally difficult, it seems, for uh, the the Japanese uh, practitioners that you were working with to sort of understand, well, who is this Kate person and how does she 
into the hierarchy. And, and that sometimes brings to the surface the sort of tensions uh, and, and inconsistencies and issues that are behind that hierarchy that otherwise are just kind of naturalized and everybody goes about their lives. But that you know, having somebody thrown into the mix who you can't really figure out which which square peg that round hole goes in forces you to sort of re-examine the whole peg and the whole system. Um, and and this was, I, I think I think you do a very nice job of sort of pointing that out as, you know, somebody who's older, um, has an established career, who's not Japanese, but who's also a beginner within the club system and has you know, special relationships with people. Uh, and so sort of you know, as somebody who also um, spent a lot of time in Japan and in university systems and so on and so forth, that feeling of uh, that th- that made a lot of sense to me from my from my own experience. Um, although you know, not in an academic, uh, sorry, not in an athletic uh, context, but I could see the sort of echoes of some of the the struggles uh, that Japan often has with figuring out these uh, hierarchies for social interaction um, when. They get all topsy turvy when uh, unexpected individuals show up. Um, yeah. So the other thing that, that that came that comes out here in in this um, these early two chapters that I, I just wanted to touch on quickly here because it gives us a transition over to um, specifically chapters three and four is this uh, idea that you um, bring up of um, sporting masculinity. Uh, this kind of you, you describe it in as almost in some ways androgynous, but that it's quite it has a sort of androgynous affect sometimes um but that's an interesting um you know idea of sporting masculinity among female athletes especially because in chapters three and four we're going to be talking about gender ideology i wonder whether you wanted to comment on that before we get into the chapters at all or should we just try and take it up there uh we can take it up there but i think that actually links back into my personal journey so this idea of sporting masculinity so I didn't realize the special connection I felt or with Japanese female kendo practitioners, but it drew back to my first experiences of kendo as a high school exchange student where I, I went to Japan, I became homesick, I needed to do an activity, I joined the kendo club. Uh, it was it seemed like quite an physically aggressive expressive like ma- basically a masculine sport but there was no attachment to masculinity uh, and this was very different to my experiences that I had of school uh, school sport when I used to love to play rugby soccer cricket and I was told by teachers and my peers as I was approaching puberty well it's not appropriate for you to be playing these sports and this is in the 90s I know it's changed a lot, but it really, uh, it really caused a disconnect with myself because I became very self-conscious that I shouldn't be playing these sports, even though it's such a big part of myself uh, and the connection that I had with myself. So when I went to Japan, I, I really loved kendo because it was, it was, it seemed to have the same characteristics as these other sports I played as a younger child. But there was no relationship to masculinity with it. It was just uh, most of the members were females. They were really aggressive and competitive, and I felt like they wanted to rip, rip my head off and train together. And I, when I was younger, I had experience. I was the only female uh, participating in these masculine sports in uh, New Zealand. So I think from there, I that was part of my research question was to understand why is sporting masculinity so accepted within the Japanese sport context. And I think it's to, uh, mainly to do with sport is considered essentially masculine and a lot of the traits and things that are taught through sport uh, in terms of success and achievement are considered masculine. And I think for women, they're still... Uh, patriarchal and heterosexist norms are prevalent throughout Japanese society. So I think within sport, even if you show that you look like a boy or you look like a young man, people don't question your sexual identity. It basically just demonstrates your commitment to sport. And on the flip side, like if women can often have, or young young women or girls can have their femininity surveilled uh, and also their private lives to ensure that 
they are committed to their sport. So, for example, in the kendo club at the time, women weren't allowed to dye their hair, they weren't allowed to have pierced ears, they weren't allowed to wear jewellery. So it's all of these uh, things that they're expected to do to subdue their femininity uh, to focus on sport. So they... So this provides so sport provides a space for women to be suspended from complying to femininity norms, but at the same time they're expected to demonstrate particular masculine characteristics to show their commitment to sport and also to be successful. And the women that I've experienced within the university systems, uh, they're very, very competitive. Uh, so I think it's just it's quite natural for them to uh, ignore the feminine need and part of as part of normative femininity that's in society, uh, but just to focus on their sport. So that means, uh, I guess, embodying the sport masculinity, and it's it's quite natural. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad we took this little diversion before getting into um, chapters three and four, where you try to sort of unpick that in a historical way, looking at uh, the underpinnings of gender hierarchy in modern Japan, uh, and then thinking about, you know, sort of how those are particularly applied in the realm of sport. Chapter three, which is legitimizing martial women, uh, looks at Bushido, which is, of course, gendered masculine, closely associated with martial virtues, idealized manhood, etc. But then you look in chapter four at the sort of obverse of that, which is the Ryosai Kembo or, uh, you know, uh, good wife, wise mother ideology, which in many ways has been the most influential sort of top down imagination of ideal womanhood. Uh, so I want to get into those chapters and sort of, you know, get, get a sense of how you feel uh, your findings in, in the historical realm fit with your experience uh, on the ground of actually being part of these uh, sporting cultures. So in chapter three, you, you take that historical look at how kendo is gendered very male, uh, very masculine in modern Japan, um, and how popular me- and sometimes scholarly media as well um, maintains that gendering often to the marginalization or exclusion of women. Um, and one of the things that you do in the chapter is to identify this sort of Meiji period, you know, late 19th, early 20th century invention of Bushido um, as a masculine martial tradition um, as the sort of, you know, there's this kind of cause and effect relationship with the idea of women's subordination as essentially Japanese, as you put it in the book, um, and the way that the uh, male-dominated kendo publishing world maintains, as you put it, misogynistic attitudes and practices in kendo as a martial arts practice. Um, And so, you know, I wonder how that fits with uh, not just, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that, but also talk about how that fits into um, your experience actually in these kendo clubs. Mm. I think why I wanted to focus on examining Bushido as an invented tradition uh, is a lot of the English publications or just general uh, across media platforms and everything related to Kendo, they they have they focus on the Bushido's relationship with samurai culture. Often Kendo is described as being very closely related to Bushido culture, to samurai culture, to male samurai. And women within these publications, they're mainly English publications that I'm that I discuss. They focus on uh, men's experience or what they've what they read into Bushido as essentially a male experience, and often they only mentioned women as wives, as daughters, sisters or prescriptive roles, but also as prostitutes. And I felt quite frustrated when I was trying to find more uh, literature on female warriors or female rulers uh, in pre-modern Japan. It became really evident that Bushido as a paradigm just focuses on one very specific type of masculinity. Uh, And I think and also all femininity in Japanese history. And I think that helps to construct or inform this Orientalism that's still very prevalent in Kendo culture. 
Uh, so even across media platforms and in Kendo magazines, uh, there's this association with that Kendo is a male tradition deeply rooted in samurai culture and women very rarely appear. Uh, but when, especially women over 40, well, they're just absent. Uh, so it's very male dominant. But when they do appear, they tend to be in a way that appeases the male gaze or their understanding of women's place in kendo culture or their imaginings of women's place in pre-modern Japan. So, so I think some of the kendo practitioners that may listen to this may not like it when I say that, particularly the male ones, but I think quite a few men, maybe of the older generation, are quite consumed by this samurai fantasy uh, that they connect kendo to pre-modern Japan without the understanding of how the Bushido ideology actually developed uh, in major Japan as a way to uh, unify and assimilate Japan with also for imperialistic uh, purposes through this idea of Japanese-ness with uh, association with pre-modern Japan and samurai culture and Budo culture. Yeah, and um, and that takes us to uh, chapter four, which is tradition gendering bodies, where you begin with the premise that, uh, and I want to quote you here, uh, women's sport education reflects the various ways women's bodies have experienced Byosai Kembo models, because sport is an important part of the educational curriculum in Japan and has a significant role in shaping identity. Um, so in the way that we're using it here, maybe we should just uh, you know, give our audience uh, a quick overview of what Yosai Kembo has been and is and how it as a prescriptive recipe um, constrains women's roles in family, society, work, etc. And then of course, how that figures into sport generally and kendo specifically. Hmm. Uh, so Yosai Kembo was uh, part of the Meiji period reformation, uh, reforming so ideal womanhood based on this good wife, wise mother, educational ideology. I guess the equivalent is Bushido for men. Uh, but basically it, it was constructed on sex difference and they took concepts from uh, samurai cultural practices for women and also Victorian uh, ideas on the sex difference. And they fused these two ideologies together uh, to form it also can be also an educational ideology for women. Uh, so this basically created an education program for women to be more suitable to house hold labour and these Confucian ideals that were taught through women's uh, education in the, in the samurai class. Uh, so quite a few scholars have noted, though, that Rosai Kembo, I mean, it was very much an educational ideology, but to how much it really reflected the lived realities of women is dubious. Uh, and even when, if we look back to samurai class women's uh, education, like there was the Confucian text of uh, Kaibara's Ona Daigaku, but it's not known how much women actually abided by the texts. So again, I think at also Kembo or even uh, samurai women's education is um, a reflected of what was expected of women at the time, well, certain class of women, the samurai in the Tokugawa period, but also Rosai Kembo was really focused on middle-class women's education and they were set to set an example of ideal womanhood to uh, Japan as a whole. Uh, so in sport education, uh, from what I have read, uh, was, of course, before... Uh, before the Meiji period, women's sport education wasn't really, well, there wasn't education for most of the Japanese population, but for samurai class women, they basically only practised naginata, 
there were some women did practice some other martial arts, but primarily it was Naginata. Uh, and coming to the Meiji period, I think educationalists were quite concerned with the idea that sport or physical exercise could masculinize women, could hurt their reproductive health. Uh, so initially, exercise is just taught uh, appropriate femininity of the time, which is politeness, grace, and that was through the introduction of Swedish gymnastics. Uh, but later, heading into uh, pre-war Japan or early, so in the early uh, 20th century, uh, exercise switched up slightly uh, to cultivate women's robust health uh, so they could bear uh, strong children uh, to strengthen Japan. That was part of their imperialistic uh, mission. Uh, so those were very much the, the early foundations of Rosai Kembo. But again, it was very much an ideology. And again, how much women actually abided by that educational philosophy, is, it's not known or it's not sure. Uh, but it has remained a part of the hidden curriculum in education uh, right through to this present day. Uh, and this is quite evident in the kendo club context, uh, particularly because it has this connection with tradition, is women are generally expected to do the menial tasks, uh, which is associated with domestic labour, uh, men's performance is prioritised, uh, Men have more resources and opportunity allocated to their uh, development and also competitions have higher status. So I think within the kendo club, uh, and this is not all kendo clubs though, so this I'm just taking from my experience, and the club that I did my field work was considered more traditional uh, because the, the sensei, the lead instructors, really did emphasise uh, women's roles and men's roles and that men's uh, performance is much more important. They represented the club, the university, and that women's role is very much to support men's performance. Uh, but, of course, that was symbolic level and women didn't feel oppressed uh, consciously, even though I think how they were restricted resources and opportunities and funding, for example, was an example of uh, gender discrimination. But I think they were much more focused on what was happening within their own club, uh, within the women's uh, female hierarchies. So they performed, I guess, traditional roles in terms of what was expected of them within that kendo club context, the, the bigger, the broader club. But I don't think... I didn't get the feeling that they were emotionally disturbed <laughs> by the fact that the men's kendo was prioritised. And and actually, some of the roles that the women were expected to do, like, for example, they would have to uh, set up the guest house, set the bedding, prepare meals. Uh, if we're on club camps, women would be mainly responsible to do all the catering tasks uh, I think they could actually develop a lot of confidence through practising how to do those tasks. I mean, even though they're considered women's responsibility in society still in Japan. But I think it was a really good opportunity to develop practical life skills. Well, that's what I, that's how I perceived their perspective to be. Yeah, one of the things that I, I enjoyed that you're doing here um, in these chapters, and I think you've you've explained quite nicely uh, in the interview right now as well, is looking at that tension between you know, ideology on the one hand, the lived reality on the other, and acknowledging that they're not the same thing, but that those ideological formations become sort of tropes, they become foundational notions that ground people's frames of reference, right? So that if you know that as a good woman, you're supposed to act a certain way, even if you don't fully buy into that, it has some influence in sort of shaping the the, the discursive possibilities and practical possibilities of, of how you act in society, um, even if it is in, you know, a sort of special space, which, you know, kendo, uh, and I think sport to some extent more generally is uh, 
equipment. Um, and that actually uh, takes us to the uh, sort of deeper dive you do in chapter five into uh, women's club culture building resilience. Um, and there's two things that you do in this chapter that uh, I, I thought were particularly interesting. One we, we've already talked about a little bit is, is talking about sporting masculinity. Um, so if, if you want to add anything to that, of course, that's fine. Um, the other is this contention that you have that kendo clubs um, focus is, or, 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 excuse me, they they they, they uh, constitute a kind of third space, as you put it, for women athletes that allow them to quote focus their energy on homosocial uh, kendo related spaces. Um, I thought this was particularly interesting in light of the conversation we've been having. And also, as you point out, the fact that university clubs are, for some of the structural reasons you've talked about, often the pinnacle and the end of women's kendo careers. So the fact that that's sort of your special social space where you get to have that third space, but then it kind of, that's the end. Um, so particularly interesting insight. And I'd, I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So when I uh, there was, I had a gap between finishing my PhD and actually writing this book, and fortunately, in that period, there was quite a few ethnographies or empirical research projects that came out from Japanese uh, scholars, and one that really informed or helped me to write my book, uh, which really helped me to also make more sense of what I had experienced or what I had observed was. Satoko Itani's work and she had done a lot of work around the Taiku Kaike identity within sports uh, clubs and this is actually one of her concepts of talking about uh, a third space where the Taiku Kaike identity uh, is accepted and that's basically a representation of sport masculinity uh, within within sport in Japan. So it's an image of matricism, uh, physical and mental toughness, authoritarianism, modesty, honesty, faithfulness, politeness, patience, and bravery. So all of these words that are typically associated with uh, masculine characteristics in sport. But uh, these are also very relevant for women because they accentuate sport success. So I think... Uh, in terms of uh, creating a third space. So it creates a, a safe space for women who, for persons who may be transgender or uh, different sexual orientation uh, because their sexuality or their gender identity is not questioned because women are generally assumed to be cisgendered or heterosexual. Uh, so their gender identity or sexuality is not really put into question while they're participating in sport uh, because it's expressing masculine characteristics or and showing your commitment to sport through expressing masculinity is seen to be conducive to successful sport. Uh, so, of course, also uh, gaining results uh, through your sport participation really has quite a, a great impact uh, on the universities as well. So the more successful the sporting teams are, the more students they're going to attract to the university. Um, of course, that's more fee-paying students and so forth. Uh, yes, so in terms of the sporting, and this, of course, draws back to my personal experience too and how it was very important for me to find a sense of belonging to the club because it came to understand, oh, for me, it was a, a part of this personal journey of understanding that sports masculinity is acceptable. And it was quite strange because, I mean, as we know, Japan is quite a gendered society and with quite a few uh, issues with gender-based discrimination and harassment and violence, for example, but it's within a Japanese kendo context that I feel that I'm able to be myself the most. And I, and I definitely identify with this uh, sporting masculinity or this taiku kaike identity. While, while you're thinking there, I hope you don't mind if I cut in. You know, one, of the, um, one of the things which uh, was interesting to me, you talked about the sort of the taiku kaike um, 
identity, right? The the identity of the what would you say the sort of sports community in, in a sense um, in in Japan. Uh, you know, on a personal level, I, re- I I related to this both having worked at a, a university that is known entirely for its sports and not its academics, which was an interesting experience uh, teaching. But um, you know, learning sort of from the inside something about that. And I also have a, a sister-in-law who was on a um, softball scholarship uh, for high school and sort of have absorbed some of, of this from her as well. And thinking about, you know, the, the ways that um, it, th- there is a possibility for this kind of uh, a, a space that is outside, as you put it, a third, third space, sort of outside of the normal flow of, of a woman's life uh, but that because it ends with university it strikes me as sort of in an interesting way it's, a, it's a, I don't know if this is a tangential or sort of uh, uh, observation but it strikes me as a little bit like some of the analysis of um, the Takarazuka theater review where you have um, all it's an all women's fem- uh, uh, you know all female troupe where women uh, are acting in male roles and they're doing so in a sense to learn how to be better women. Right. Um, and at some point you graduate from Takarazuka as well, right? You sort of end that and you're supposed to, at that point, sort of go on to be part of a mainstream you know, Japanese society and act as that sort of Yosai Kembo model of Japanese femininity. Um, and you know how to do that better because you understand the, the the other side of that as well. And it struck me that there's a weird sort of parallelism with what's happening, the, the way you're describing it in sport. Um, I, I don't know whether that's accurate or not, but it seemed to me an interesting avenue to just for, for myself, at least to explore. I think with the, the Rosai Kembo ideology, I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think we can call it Rosai Kembo any I mean, even though there's definitely women's education, I think how women's education is formulated or constructed now definitely shows remnants of Rosai Kemble, ideology of the good wife, wise mother. But I think women's role has definitely uh, developed and I found now through my, uh, through my research is that very much... Uh, women are expected to gain employment after uh, after they graduate from university and actually maintain that employment throughout their lives. Uh, so I think uh, going back to that, uh, my point I wanted to make was, yes, yeah, so I think with university, I, I, it creates a sport club environments, create this bubble or the safe haven for women that may have different gender identities or uh, sec- no, they're not, they don't fit within the, the heteronormativity. Uh, but I think what happens is after women graduate from university or they're not in those elite environments anymore, that's when they are expected to conform to these femininity norms uh, in the way in their appearance, and also I think uh, and Itani Satoko talks about this in her book too. I think some women are actually quite shocked because they've been within these bubbles, uh, within these female hierarchies, where they've actually experienced quite a lot of status and power, and their mentors and learnt leadership qualities and really focused on developing their confidence uh, in sports but also as mentors and then when they go into the workforce I think they're quite shocked with how male dominant working cultures can be and this is not all I'm not speaking about all working cultures but I'm uh, speaking about sport related organizations or these uh pathways that women take either with the police or prison system or particular company companies where they uh, that they select to continue their kendo competitive kendo careers uh, but I think the most status is uh, for women's kendo in Japan is associated with a university kendo and I think that's related to 
the business model of universities uh, where still uh, competition success can draw uh, potential students. And I think once they retire, well, once they uh, graduate from university, this is where this remnants of it also can come through is that women, the social expect, uh, the, the construct is that women will become, get married, have children, become wives. Uh, but again, that's a, a symbolic level ideology because many women want to pursue careers or continue kendo through marriage. I mean, some women are returning to high-level kendo three months after having children. I mean, that's quite incredible when you consider how difficult kendo is when you've had a break even from injury but coming back from childbirth. Um, So I guess the shock is definitely that they experience so much uh, status. Like they, as fourth-year students, as senior students, they're almost treated like gods. I mean, even as a, I was 36 at the time, and I felt so intimidated by the presence of these 22-year-old senpai uh, because they really embodied, it was almost like they had been waiting four years to step into this uh, status role, and they really reveled in it. Uh, Yeah, so I think once women, they... uh, graduate from university, they don't really have the same level of uh, status or experience of empowerment that they did as they did when they were operating within these uh, homosocial female hierarchies and also uh, the status associated with their competition results. Even though it was lower than men's results, it still had quite a lot of status uh, associated with it. Yeah, and so we're recording uh, the same week as International Women's Day when the OECD puts out its annual report. Uh, And once again, this year, Japan was very near the bottom of the barrel at 28 out of 29 in the OECD for uh, gender disparity in the workplace. So it would hardly be surprising that you would go from, you know, stepping into that high status role, um, having many individual accomplishments, uh, and so on, and then finding the workplace uh, to be a shocking uh, role reversal um, in many ways. So that, that, that sort of tracks a lot with, with what's in the news as well. Um, and it does uh, lead us to uh, your conclusion where you're thinking about the future of uh, gender in sport uh, in Japan more broadly, specifically referencing Kendo, of course, but you also look at the um, women's football squads, the soccer squads, the Nadeshko, uh, who are, you know, have been extraordinarily successful. Um, the- 20 Tokyo Games, and so sort of, you know, where women's sport is now. Um, and so I wonder if we could touch on that in closing before uh, talking a little bit more about what you're up to uh, these days with your research. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, of course, even though there are these practices, that the gender pay gra- gap is still significant. Uh, there's definitely issues with uh, sexual harassment and violence across Japanese society. I mean, I was quite shocked when I, well, I wouldn't say shocked, I was quite, I've become quite used to it, but I even with this increased awareness with taibatsu, corporate punishment, and that it's not acceptable to sexually harass or power harass women, there's definitely more of an awareness. But I remember sitting in spaces where these conversations were happening around me and I just had to listen and not try to react or engage uh, with them. But it it seems uh, there's a greater awareness that it's it's not acceptable, but I don't think there's an awareness of the harm that it has on women or or corporal punishment as well. And I think it's because it's very much naturalised as part of the culture, and this is, I'm speaking particularly in sport context. Um, I know there's a lot of changes happening across different facets of uh, society. Uh, so I think there's definitely a very, it's very difficult to shift this notion of tradition or that's associated with male domination in sport culture 
uh, in Japan. Uh, but in saying that, I mean, there are so many things, positive things that are happening. Of course, we know Nadeshka was hugely successful, but we can see the gender pay gap was enormous. They received very little remuneration for what they achieved. Uh, and, but, but also it definitely created great, greater awareness uh, for women's soccer. And a lot of the, the women from that team, the 2011, when they won the World Cup against America, it was, of course, when the Tohoku earthquake uh, occurred. And they were very much considered the leading light to help Japan through a very, very, very uh, difficult time. Uh, and uh, quite a few of the athletes have gone on to do, uh, from the team, have done quite uh, good things. So a few things to note uh, is that uh, there's a program called NADECARE, so NADECARE, I think it's an abbreviation of Nadeshko CARE, uh, so it's to help uh, athletes in their post, uh, post-athletic careers, females specifically, uh, there's the We Empowerment Soccer League, which is a new professional female soccer league who's led, uh, it's led by a woman as a chairwoman. Uh, notably, and this is quite significant, uh, is a retired national team member, Nagasato Yuki. She, was, she made history by being one of the first women to play in the men's professional league in Japan. And... This is very quite significant because even within kendo, it's very rare that women will uh, coach men or referee men's competitions. So this is quite symbolic that she uh, she played in this men's professional league. Uh, and there's also at the Olympics, there were quite a few uh, national uh, team coaches. Uh, Nadeshko actually had a female head coach, uh, Takakura Asako, and also the volleyball team had a, a head coach as well, Nakata Kumi. Uh, the teams didn't do so well uh, in terms of the success that was expected of them, the pressure of performing in Japan uh, in the Tokyo Olympics. So the Nadeshko finished top eight and the volleyball team finished uh, in 10th place. But I think... This again, unfortunately, if they had been successful, winning gold or at least silver, I think it really would have opened more doors for female coaches. But in a way, the success or not, I wouldn't say it wasn't success, but they didn't achieve a result. It kind of reaffirms that women can't coach. so they're, they're no longer the coaches of those national teams. But then if we look at the uh, the women's softball coach, uh, Itsugi Reika, they, they won gold and they beat America in the final. So that was a very positive uh, outcome there. And there's, I mean, there's so many things happening in sport, and it, particularly uh, women's judo. There's uh, Yamaguchi Kaori. She's doing significant things in uh, women's Judo. If you look at the web page, there's uh, pages and pages of uh, notes on or interviews with women who act as mentors, uh, and also so yeah. So uh, Kaori Yamaguchi has definitely tried to make women's judo more visible. So if you compare judo with kendo, completely. Uh, worlds apart uh, in that way uh, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that judo is an Olympic sport and of course there are, there are quite a few gender quotas and things that they have to meet um, when a sport is an Olympic sport uh, but there's, so there's actually quite a lot of change happening uh, in terms of visibility and uh, female-led initiatives but again there's an issue with a gender pay gap uh, and gender-based dis- discrimination, power harassment, sexual harassment, uh, all of these things are still very much big problems. And I think this was m- one of the main motivations 
for me to write my book was that over my 30 years, I've heard so many stories from my friends uh, that, and I haven't, I've never been able to say anything. So I've been silenced in a way to protect them. But but, uh, I think sexual violence and sexual harassment and power harassment uh, within sport is, it's still very much a problem that is silenced. And it doesn't only affect women, it also affects men and boys. And I think this is definitely connected to uh, the image of sport being masculine and sporting organisations and sport leadership being male-dominant and also this connection with uh, male domination having very much a connection with tradition. So anything that's labelled with tradition is uh, much more difficult to change. Yeah, and and at the same time, what you've just laid out for us is ways in which those traditions uh, and practices are being challenged in some ways and changing. Um, And that, you know, could mean we're in this very interesting transitional time, which must be an exciting time to be researching. So I'd love to know uh, what it is you're working on now, uh, now that you've got your book out. Yes, so I I did a a fieldwork last year. I travelled to Japan and it was very exciting because I hadn't been to Japan for three years because of corona. Uh, But I examined, uh, so that was the next step. So I very much, during my PhD research, I examined uh, how women experienced university kendo and and their perceptions of opportunities and which was connected to the perceptions of their social worlds. But I, this time in my field trip, I examined uh, just not kendo, but actually other sports. So I surveyed a range of sports within one university uh, just to examine uh, how women perceived the relationship between sport and what's considered normative femininity in Japan now, in contemporary Japan. Uh, so I guess uh, there's there isn't any re, uh, contemporary research in English anyway. There's there's a lot of work happening with the Japan Society for Sport and Gender Studies, the Nihon Sports to Gender Gakkai, and there's a lot of ethnographic work coming out from a number of scholars. Uh, but there's uh, but a lot of the publications are in uh, Japanese. So my uh, I use I refer to a lot of their work when I'm writing. Uh, my research into English. Uh, so there's a lot happening in Japan. It just hasn't been shared globally yet in terms of uh, sport and gender studies uh, in Japan. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's one uh, one thing I'm working on. But I'm also in the process of uh, applying for a grant to research how kendo is practised in Sweden uh, and it's interesting because I think in some ways the way that kendo's participated in outside of Japan that very much hold on to these traditional notions of masculinity and femininity and connect our kendo experiences to this concept of bushido. And I think most people that practice kendo don't understand the process of the, the, all the evolution of Bushido. And I and part of my uh, research now is very much it's autoethnographic because I'm experienced I'm experiencing a type of sexism in Kendo that I've never experienced in Japan or even in other countries. And it's interesting because in Sweden as we it's quite well known. It ranks quite highly on the the gender gap index. It's considered to be quite a gender equal society. But then I I want to examine why am I experiencing a feeling of sexism or gender inequality within a martial art, within a society that has uh, many more practices and policies in regards to gender. Uh, equality. So I think it very much has something to do with how people connect kendo practice to what they imagine Bushido samurai culture or kendo practice to be in Japan without actually understanding that Japan, 
kendo and sports in Japan are actually developing quite well. I wouldn't say rapidly, but kendo has definitely changed uh, to coincide or to complement the, the changes that are happening in Japanese society. So there are more changes happening in Japanese kendo and Japanese sports than what is perceived from the outside. And I feel that how kendo is practiced in Sweden still, it's almost stuck in, <laughs> uh, and in some other countries as well. It needs to connect more with the changes, the significant changes that are happening, uh, which which happens in culture, like culture is always in motion, it's always changing, it's, it's never fixed. Uh, and I think the way that kendo is practiced outside of Japan needs to, to catch up with the reality of the changes that are happening within Japan and kendo. Well, that's fascinating. Um, and I hope we'll uh, have a chance to get you back on the podcast to talk about that uh, sometime soon. So good luck with the grant. Uh, and thank you again for joining us today. Thank you very much. All right. Take care.